back this morning, we're going to uh, continue in our time in Colossians. Uh, we're going to finish up Colossians chapter 1 this morning and teaching through verses 24 to 29. And um, Paul is bringing to an end his extended introduction to this book. And um, so the introductory aspects of his letter, he's bringing to a close with a, a lengthy description of who he is and what he does. And as, as a little bit of a way of a preview for our next sermon in Colossians, in the, the very next verse, which is chapter 2, verse 1, um, that we'll deal with next time I get to come back to Colossians, um, Paul's talking to the people in Colossae and to Laodicea and the Lycus Valley, and he says in that verse that he has not seen them personally face to face. And so this description of who he was and the explanation of, of his ministry would have been very appropriate since he was talking to people in this letter that he had never met. Um, and so Paul in the verses before us today does something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, I think. He sets his own life and his own ministry before the Colossians as an example to follow. And we're accustomed to seeing this in Paul. When, if we read through his letters, he does this a lot. Um, he's not embarrassed to say, look at me. Follow me. I follow Christ. And if you follow me, you're following after Christ. And like I said, this makes us feel a little uncomfortable because it seems like it could be arrogance to us. If we were to say something like that, it would feel like arrogance if we said something like that. But I, as we'll see later, this is just a part of the whole picture of how Paul sees himself and his role in Christ's kingdom. And I wonder, should we have a similar confidence in Christ to what Paul displayed when he sets himself up as an example? What is it that prevents us from urging others to follow us as we follow Christ? I think many of us have, have questions regarding whether or not we're rightly following Christ ourselves. And we worry that if we have others to follow us, that we're going to lead them astray. Or we're not going to lead them to a good dis destination. And I think we'll get into that question a little bit as the sermon progresses as well. But Paul was not afraid at all to urge others to look to him and to follow his example. And I believe it should be our aim to achieve this level of confidence in Christ as well. That we would urge others similarly. Look, I've, I've been through this. You can follow my example in this regard. I think that's part of what God does when he matures us in our walk with him. So as we dig into the, the text a little bit more today, I want to give you the five main points that I want to make uh, from the text. But I also want to preface these things by saying that they're not in the text in as orderly a fashion as I'm going to give them to you. Um, there's no clear point one, clear point two, clear point three, etc. In, in the way that Paul lays things out in these verses. But they're there. The points are all there for us to take away, but they're just blended together within the passage. You see, we need to keep in mind that Paul was writing a letter to friends people he wanted to establish a relationship with and a friendship with. Um, and so he was not super orderly, even though he was clearly communicating doctrine, even though he was co co clearly communicating right living, he was also communicating in friendship and love toward them. So the points I present before you today are derived from the text, but it blends them together. And I think you'll see them clearly as we move forward through this passage. And they all have to do with this example that the Apostle Paul set. So here they are, five of them. Paul sets an example of the first one, the right attitude. Secondly, Paul sets an example of the right assessment of self. Third, Paul sets example of the right mission. And fourth, Paul sets an example of the right work ethic. And fifth, Paul sets an example for us of the right adoration. So let me read this passage, okay, and pray. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I come before you um, this morning with this passage of Scripture on my heart and on my mind. Father, with, with things I have thought through and things I have written down, and Lord, things that I've pondered and prayed through this past week. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that, that um, those who hear this would see um, the meaning of your word, but they would also see the importance of your word. And Father, that they would also see ready application for how they can use your word in their lives. Jesus, I lift all these things up and I place this sermon before you, God, as an offering of worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's dig in. The first point, Paul is an example. He sets an example of the right attitude. Okay? He says, now I rejoice in my suffering. Paul rejoices in his suffering. I want you to think about this. Joy is listed as a fruit of the Spirit of God in the life of believers in Galatians chapter 5. In numerous passages, joy and rejoicing are not just encouraged, they're actually commanded and expected. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people are commanded to rejoice. Psalm 70 verse 4 says, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Psalm 33 verse 1 says, sing for joy in the Lord. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. These are just a couple of examples from the Old Testament. It's all over the place. God anticipates that his people will be a joyful people. And Paul sets an example of this in rejoicing, even in the midst of his sufferings. Two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak on the importance of holiness before a group of high school and junior high students on our winter retreat. And the passage that I spoke from was Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. And that passage begins with rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. That passage also goes on to speak about the need to be anxious for nothing. And I noted to the students that one of the distinctions of the generations that are living in our day is the widespread phenomenon of anxiety and depression. They're so thoroughly plugging our society that they also infiltrate the, the hearts and minds of those in the church who belong to Christ. Anxiety and depression. They did in Paul's day, too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned them, right? He wouldn't have said, there's there's no need to be anxious. He wouldn't have urged so often, rejoice, find joy, be joyful. But the joy of the early church was a dramatic testimony to the world about them. And it has the potential to be a dramatic testimony to the world about us today. The joy of Christ in our lives Why are joy and peace in such short supply in our modern day? Are they in short supply in your life? I hope not. But statistically, it's very likely that I'm speaking directly to people who feel plagued by anxiety and depression. Even right now, even in this room. And all of us go through seasons where circumstances lend themselves to sadness and to worry. But for some of you, it it could be that the default position of your mind and heart 
our depression and anxiety. And I want to challenge your thinking a little bit this morning on this, based on the Scriptures, based on the example of the right attitude that Paul exhibited in our passage today. And I want to ask you two loaded questions. Questions that I want you to ponder deeply, okay? Ponder them now, ponder them in the days to come, and here they are. Have you really considered that the Bible presents abiding joy and peace as a possibility for God's people? The second is similar to this one. Have you considered that the Bible presents abiding joy and peace as God's intention for His people? Have you thought through that? Take some time to think through that, those questions throughout the week. Many of us suffer from abiding depression and anxiety. That from the outside, it doesn't appear to be based on circumstances in our lives necessarily. In fact, our our society, rather than viewing them as circumstantial, treats them as clinical. I think sometimes far too quickly and far too often they they immediately jump to a, a clinical reason for these things. In other words, things from the perspective of our circumstances oftentimes don't seem to be that bad, but we can't seem to find joy and peace. They remain elusive to us and just outside of our grasp. The Scriptures don't seem to treat our moods or our attitudes as ultimately based on circumstantial or clinical causes. Rather, the Scriptures treat those moods and attitudes more as based on our spiritual condition. What was it about Paul that allowed him to experience joy and peace even though the circumstances of his life seemed like enough to make any normal person depressed and anxious? Paul suffered almost constantly, yet he still rejoiced. I, Mike Bowling went into this in detail, the suffering and, the, and the, the difficulty that the Apostle Paul suffered in his life, yet still he rejoiced in the midst of them and after them. You see, Paul was given a special task from God to do something that could only cause conflict and trouble. The job that, that Jesus gave to Paul was specifically intended to make him suffer. When Jesus described to Ananias what he was going to do for the Apostle Paul, he said to to Ananias, I'm going to show Paul what it means to suffer for me. So the job that that, that God gave to Paul was going to create an, an incredible amount of conflict and trouble. Paul was going to take the gospel, this new message, he was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And once he had done that, Paul was going to try to broker peace between the Gentiles and the Jews in this new move of God called the church. And we don't appreciate just how difficult this task was for Paul or for anybody. Everywhere Paul went, he received animosity from Jews. And these were his kinsmen, and they treated him as a false teacher, as someone who had fallen away and apostatized from the faith. On the flip side, everywhere he went, he suffered animosity from the Gentiles. They treated him as a disruptor of their social order, of their religions, of their commerce. And he was beaten numerous times and imprisoned in numerous places. In this very letter that he's writing to the Colossians, he's writing from prison. And yet he writes, I rejoice in my suffering. He still found cause for rejoicing. How could this be? How could this be? Here's some clues from the text that may help us to find some help in our own struggles with these. Here's the first thing. Paul didn't live primarily for his own desires and ambitions. He adopted God's ambitions and desires, which turned him into a servant. Look at these phrases from verses 24 and 25. He talks about, for your sake. On behalf of his body, which is the church. Of this church, for your benefit, he says in in verse 25. Paul was all about God's ambitions, not his own. And let me ask you one more very probing question. What if we're suffering spiritually with depression and anxiety because we're not suffering for the right thing? 
What if we're suffering with these other things because we're not suffering for the cause of Christ? Dwight's devotion from March 2nd. Did you guys read it in the Lenten devotional? By the way, I'm loving the Lenten devotional. Are you guys enjoying that? I'm having a a great time reading through those. Dwight's devotion from March 2nd. It was on Jonah, and I thought it was very good. I told him I was going to mention him here. He asked the question, how in the world could Jonah sleep in the hull of a ship that was being tossed all over the place with water from the waves crashing over the sides of the ship and seeping through the deck boards and dripping all around him in that hull of that ship? And Dwight's insightful suggestion was that, that Jonah could have been depressed. And I think that was a very insightful thing to to offer. And that depression stemmed from Jonah fleeing from God. Jonah was in the midst of refusing to do the very thing that God had told him to do, refusing to do God's will. And if you think of Jonah in contrast to the Apostle Paul, in one sense, Paul is the anti-Jonah character of the New Testament. You see, Jonah refused to go where God wanted him to go, and he couldn't find happiness. Paul, on the other hand, he went without complaint to whatever hostile place God sent him. Jonah, even at the very end, after only going to Nineveh because God refused his refusal and stuck him in the mouth of a great fish and made him puke him out on the, the beach, Jonah couldn't shake his depression even though God had given him great success in Nineveh. Jonah's mission was a roving success. Paul, on the other hand, He couldn't help but be joyful, even though he faced a good measure of opposition everywhere God sent him. I find this remarkable. I find it very remarkable. How often do we come to God with our schedules, with our plans and our purpose statements and our budgets, and we ask Him to bless these things when we carve out portions for God as if He didn't already own the whole of it? I will get to doing God's work once I get all of these other things done first. God, I have plans for a family. I have plans for savings. I have plans for retirement. I have plans for education and for career. I have all these plans. God, I can carve out this much and at this time for you. But right now, I have this other thing. And in the midst of it all, we may not even realize that we're doing it. But are we really treating God as God who deserves first? And are we really treating ourselves as servants who come last, the way Paul did? Do we miss out on joy because we suffer selfishly? Paul suffered because he was about God's business in serving others selflessly. And even in the midst of that suffering, he found cause for rejoicing. Paul realized that he had a task to fulfill from God. He had a share of work to do, and the doing of it gave him great joy. He says, in my flesh I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now this is an interesting little phrase, so as an aside here, let me clarify something that's very important about this little verse. And that word afflictions there is very important, because one could be tempted to interpret this verse as Paul saying that there was something insufficient in Christ's work in dying on the cross and rising from the dead that Paul himself had to make up for. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying there's anything insufficient in Christ's work. That word afflictions is actually never used in the New Testament to describe Christ's redemptive work. Rather, it's, it's translated as afflictions. This, the other way this word is translated is tribulations or trouble. The same word Jesus used in John 16 when he warned the disciples that in the world you will have trouble or tribulation or afflictions. That's the same word. Paul was acknowledging that in this, that, that God has ordained that his people in persevering until Christ comes again to usher in his ultimate reign will suffer tribulation or afflictions. Christ himself suffers these afflictions in that his church, which is his body, continues to suffer them until he comes to rescue them. So in that sense, these afflictions are afflictions against Christ. Just like when Paul was persecuting the Christians, even though Jesus had already ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, Paul was persecuting the church and the Christians, but Jesus came to Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Why are you afflicting me? The remarkable thing that Paul is saying here is that he experienced the ability to rejoice even in the midst of suffering these afflictions. And this leads me to my second point. The second good example that Paul sets for us. Paul was able to do this because he was an example of the right self-assessment. So Paul knew how to assess himself rightly. He had great victory in overcoming his self-centeredness and his selfishness. And this should serve as a model for ourselves. Back in January on Pro-Life Sunday, in my previous sermon, I preached through 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. And I made the point from that sermon and from that text that self-love, as it's used in that passage to describe the sinfulness that marks the last days, is a major problem in our own day. This epidemic of self-love. Sinful self-love is epidemic in our day. And I made that point as part of a broader point that our society's overall ordering of love or loves is askew. It's off the mark. It's, it's out of place. And I stand by that assessment and everything that I taught in that sermon. But it's also appropriate to balance what I said about the sinful self-love with the understanding that the Bible doesn't teach in reaction to sinful displays of self-love that we ought to hate ourselves. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. That's a complete overreaction, pendulum swing to the opposite end of the spectrum. You see, Scripture actually assumes that we do love ourselves. And there's a degree of self-love that is good and normal. What we see in Scripture is that love of self can and does become all-consuming. And this is sinful. So the Scriptures teach that to temper this tendency toward overemphasis of self-love, we need to order our loves rightly. The first and greatest command is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then it's to love our neighbors as ourselves. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. Thus, self-love is implied in these verses, as well as the proper ordering of love. And Paul, in the verses before us today here in Colossians, shows that he's an example of a right assessment of himself and a correct ordering of love. In verse 23, Paul had just told the Colossians something that he repeats in verse 25. And he says this, that he was made a minister. Paul viewed himself as a minister. The word here is the same word for deacon in the New Testament. And he used this word to describe Epaphras. Remember important important Epaphras from many, many months ago? Back in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, he used that word to describe him. Except there he translates it as servant instead of minister. Um, The use of this word, though, conveys a lowly status. Paul did not see himself as deserving of prominence or reverence. He did not think more highly of himself than he ought to. In addition to referring to himself as a deacon or a minister or a servant, Paul used the word stewardship also in this description. He said, and this word refers to one who has the management of another's household. In other words, he's taking care of someone else's property. God's property, the church. And he didn't see himself as the owner with the rights of ownership. He saw himself as a lowly yet trusted servant who should do his very best to take care of his master's property. Jesus told a parable in Luke 17, verses 7 to 10 that exhibits Paul's mindset really well. Jesus said this to him, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward then you may eat and drink. The master does not thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded. Does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you're commanded, should say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Roy Hessian, in his book, The Calvary Road, it's actually really more of a masterpiece. It's a very good book. He wrote a chapter entitled, Are You Willing to Be a Servant? And it's based on delving into this very parable in a beautiful way. And it would seem that Paul was a willing person. 
to be a servant. How about you? Are you willing to be viewed as less than prominent? Are you willing to be a servant to others? Jesus' own disciples struggled with this issue of assessing themselves rightly. And I think we often mimic them rather than Paul in this regard. You remember that little episode from Mark chapter 10 where the disciples and Jesus were all on the road walking up to Jerusalem and James and John, the two sons of thunder, uh, came up to Jesus and they said to him, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Have you ever had a, a kid say something like that to you? Come on, like, Dad, I want you to say yes to whatever I'm going to ask you. Like, you would not be very smart to say, okay, son, because they haven't told you yet what they're going to ask you. And if they ask you something like that, chances are they're not going to ask you something good. And this was the case for James and John. They come up, Lord, we want you to do whatever it is we ask you to do for us. And Jesus patiently asks, answers and says, okay, what do you want me to do? And so they proceeded to ask for seats of prominence and importance when Jesus was in his glorious kingdom. You guys remember this. And Jesus' reply was that they reflected the wrong attitude toward their own importance. His final words, if you remember in that little episode, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are all too often like them in wanting to be the one that's served rather than the one serving. And we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Paul said in Philippians 2, 3 or 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Romans 12, 3, Paul says, for, though, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have a sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. How conceited and selfish can our thoughts about ourselves be sometimes? How lofty do we see ourselves at times? Paul models a right assessment of self. And we're going to move on to the third point. Paul sets another good example for us. Paul sets an example of the right mission for us. Verses 25 and 28 says this, Paul's mission was to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. We proclaim Him, in verse 28 it says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The scope of Paul's ministry was more narrow than we often think. You can really distill it down to this one phrase, to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. One of Paul's final exhortations to Timothy before Paul would be martyred was this. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word, he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul mentions that the Word of God provided to him all the equipment that ministers need for success. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Peter echoes this sentiment in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. In other words, His Word. So that by them, by that Word, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture To say the Scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. So Paul was all about the Word of God. This was his great mission and goal. And this is the the very thing that should be the primary mission of every church. And sadly, it's one of the more neglected and criticized things in the modern American church. 
Recently, just in time for the the Shepherds Conference, um, Christianity Today published yet another hit piece aimed at uh, Pastor John MacArthur. And he's the one who actually hosts and organizes the Shepherd Conference. In this instance, the Christianity Today article uh, dealt with an accusation from a former elder at their church um, that their church leadership at MacArthur's church did not handle a situation involving spousal and child abuse adequately. And the alleged wrongdoing on the part of the church towards these persons occurred many years ago. And whether or not the matter in question was handled rightly or adequately is not the point of my bringing up this example. Because it could be that the accusations are off base. They oftentimes are. It could be that the eldership at the time actually did work, did do things correctly. It could be that they didn't. They're men after all. I don't know. I don't know the answer to all those questions. But the reason I bring it up is because part of this attack on MacArthur's ministry said disparaging things about biblical counseling in general. And it specifically called out an organization that seeks to teach biblical counting, accounting, I'm sorry, biblical counseling principles. And that, that, that group is the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Some of you may be familiar with that group. But they exist basically to teach biblical counseling principles. But what's really under attack here in the midst of this, and this story just illustrates the problem, is that the f- sufficiency of Scripture is under attack. Do the Scriptures really equip us Christians adequately to navigate this life in every category? Do the Scriptures need help from secular or worldly institutions on things to help it along, to instruct us in how to counsel, how to live, how to believe? Or are the Scriptures sufficient? Paul believed they were. Is it enough for our church here to be singularly and primarily focused on the teaching, the believing, and the living of the Bible? You may may have noticed that verse 28 repeats the word every man three times. And the repetition of these words ought to signal to interpreters something important. Why would Paul repeat this this way? Every man, every man, every man. Some translations say everyone, everyone, everyone. Remember, though, that the context of this letter involved Paul confronting an early iteration of a heresy that was emerging in the Lycus Valley churches. And that heresy had an elitist flavor to it. It seems there were some in the midst of the Colossian church uh, that were teaching that there was a secret knowledge reserved only for the elite and the initiated. And Paul was confronting this error. Simply put, he believed that every man needs warning and every man needs to be taught because every man will be presented before the Lord. Thus, the goal should be for every man to grow in maturity. Paul thought that is exactly what churches ought to be about. His ministry was a word-centered ministry and ours should be too. Look at all the verbs here that Paul uses. Paul saw this preaching, this proclamation, this teaching, this admonishing or warning of the Word of God as the only means to developing maturity. Look what he says was the end result of of carrying out his mission. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. The Word of God produces maturity. And said another way, a word-centered ministry produces people who are ready to be presented to Jesus on the day when he appears. That's what Paul was alluding to when he spoke of presenting every man. He was alluding to the return of Jesus. And this future event was never far from Paul's thinking and writing. Paul believed that the return of Jesus was imminent. And so it produced in him the next example that we should follow, right? Because he believed Jesus' return was imminent, it produced this other good example for us to follow. And here's the fourth point. Paul sets for us an example of the right work ethic. Verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, 
striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. When I worked for my previous employer, which was a securities broker dealer, every two years we would get a notice from FINRA or the SEC, or both sometimes, that they were going to come in to audit our business and sales practices and our compliance area. I worked in the compliance area, so these governmental bodies would come in and and audit the work that I had done. And this would always lead to, when we get these announcements, it would lead to an all-hands-on-deck effort to produce all of the case documents and all of the reports that they would be reviewing when they arrived. It was a flurry of activity. They would give us notice that they were coming, but they also told us the date. Here's when we're going to be here. And if they were to show up and we had not done the work of getting ready, then the result could be very costly fines or very costly penalties. In a similar sense, Jesus left this earth when he ascended into heaven, and behind him a messenger angel told the apostles who witnessed his ascension and were looking up into the sky. This angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. And Paul knew this. It's actually, if you get a chance to just read through all of Paul's letters, it's an interesting exercise to to read through them all with just the intention of discovering how many times he alludes to this event of Jesus' return. It's literally all over the place. It flavors everything Paul writes about. He constantly had this moment in history, his future history, when he would stand before Jesus in mind. And it motivated him. The motive for Paul's striving so diligently at this mission was the return of Jesus. Look in verse 29 at the way Paul describes his preparation for that eventual day. He says, labor and striving. Labor is a word that means to work with wearying effort. Striving, it was a term used in athletic circles. Just like the, 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 the photo finish that we, sh- that we saw in Sunday school. That word striving is the Greek word agon- agonizomai, which means it's the word that literally produces our English word agony. Right? It means to take great pains, to struggle, to contend mightily with maximum effort. This is the way Paul described his work ethic. Paul did not have a nine-to-five existence. Paul did not make sure he was home every night for dinner by 5.30. That was not the type of life he lived. Is there anything in our lives that motivates us to that level of effort? Is there something that we can't, that we love doing so much, we can't stand the thought of not doing it, that we love it so much that we forget dinner time? And we forget, oh shoot, my family is at home. I have neglect. Not that we should do that. Not that we should neglect our families and things like that at home. But is there a a passion that drives you to that level of diligence and striving in your life? And how much striving do we exert for lesser things in this life? Sometimes I think we behave more like those scoffers in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, who says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We act like it's way off in the distance. I've got plenty of time. There's other things I can tend to first. This is not the way Paul lived. This was not Paul's work ethic when it came to the gospel. And lest we think, though, that preparation for this coming event is all our own responsibility, or Paul thought that it was all his own responsibility. It's not. Note what else Paul says in verse 29. He did all this work. He labored so diligently and so mightily according to his power, God's power, which mightily works within him, he says. Not for a moment did Paul think that the readiness needed to be presented before the Lord of glory was within the scope of his own abilities. He relied fully on the Spirit of God within him, that empowered and motivated his efforts to teach and to preach toward maturity. And this too is another example that Paul had the right assessment of himself. We're nearing the end. 
of the sermon. And we've just one more point to cover. And you may have noticed that I've pretty much skipped verses 26 and 27. Why would I do that? Well, the preposition, though, here at the end of verse 29 connects us back to those verses. You see, Paul mentions a mightily working power within himself, right? And that's the preposition within or in. Incidentally, do you know how to pronounce the Greek preposition for in? Anybody know that? It's in. Ta-da, Greek. Yeah, Um, it's in. It's pronounced the same way. And Paul has used this preposition numerous times in these last six verses of chapter 1. He told them to rejoice in. He talked about uh, suffering in his flesh. He talked about uh, the lack, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. He mentioned something about being great among the Gentiles. That word among is actually in, the same preposition. Teaching everyone with all wisdom. That, that word with is actually the Greek preposition in. Mature in Christ. Powerfully works within me. He uses that preposition over and over again in these six verses. And I skipped a one that was very important in that list, and that is Christ in you. And this leads me to my final point, point number five. Paul set another example for us, and that's an example of the right adoration. Verses 26 to 27. Paul was very fond of talking about a mystery in his writings. More so than any other New Testament author, The word for mystery appears 27 times in the New Testament. And of those 27, Paul uses 20 of them. So he spoke about mysteries a lot. And nearly all of the uses of this word that Paul employed are referring to Christ. Not all of them, but nearly all of them are referring to Christ in some aspect of the gospel. It was a mystery to Paul. And to Paul, a mystery meant something that was hinted at in the pages of the Old Testament that awaited an explanation or an understanding that would happen some future day. And Paul was blown away that that future day had arrived in his generation. Paul knew the Old Testament prophesied and taught the saving purposes of God for his people, Israel. He also knew that the Old Testament made numerous mentions of Israel becoming a blessing to all nations. And and it predicted a time when the Gentiles from all over the world would become worshipers of Israel's God. Paul knew this. But Paul was blown away. He was constantly marveling at the way in which God brought about this salvation through the life and death, resurrection, ascension, and ultimate return of Jesus. Paul was mesmerized by the person and work of Jesus. Jesus was his greatest adoration I have some visual aids I want to show you guys right now. Are you guys familiar with word clouds? If you're reading through a document and you ask it to make a word cloud, it will basically take words that are repeated in that document and it will make uh, them bigger based on how many times they're repeated. So the things that are repeated the most are biggest. Things that are repeated the, the least are smallest in a word cloud. Well, there's a program I have that you can pull up a word cloud for all the books in the Bible. Let me just ask Caleb to show the one for Colossians, which should be that first one. What do you see there? Christ, right? Big and bold, right out front, Christ. Let's go to Philippians, Caleb. Christ. How about Ephesians? Christ. What about Galatians? Christ. Christ. Paul adored Jesus. He was mesmerized by Jesus. He couldn't couldn't stop marveling at the great mystery that was Christ. Christ dominated his teaching, he dominated his writing. He dominated his living. He dominated his thinking. He dominated his loves. He loved Jesus. Paul was blown away that the the saints or, or the Christians living in his day were entrusted to be the recipients of the understanding of this ancient mystery. 
And one of the things that was so delightfully surprising to Paul was the way that God was making known this mystery even among the Gentiles. And we don't appreciate this very well in our modern context, but this was huge for Paul and the the Jews in his day, that the Gentiles could be a part of this too, just blew his mind. And so you find that also in his writings all all over the place. But the, the, the amazing way that this passage identifies the mystery is this way. The great mystery is this, Christ in you. A few weeks back, in our trail life troop, Doug Knoxell came and he taught our uh, younger kids simple tools. And he came for two weeks. One week he taught simple tools and the other week he taught rockets. And one of the simple tools that he brought on his, uh, his teaching excursion that week were some magnets, some special magnets called neodymium magnets. Has anybody ever used a neodymium magnet? They're super powerful. Like, you put them together, you cannot pull them apart with your own strength. Your hands will slip off. You have to, like, slide them apart or wedge them apart. They have an extreme amount of, of magnetic force. Magnets have always mesmerized me. They've always been mysterious to me. And one of the reasons is because you can't sense magnetism, right? You can't smell magnets. You can't taste magnetism, that magnetic field. You can't hear it. It doesn't make a sound. You can't feel it by touch, right? You can't really sense magnetism until you see magnets having an effect on other objects, right? Whether it be another magnet or some piece of metal that has iron in it, right? You can take a magnet and set it on your table and put another magnet underneath the table. And if it's similar poles are in the same direction, it will flip that magnet on the table and it's like magic. Like, what is this? What a marvel is a magnet. It's completely unseen, but it's undeniable. Magnetic fields are undeniable, though you can't see them. A week back, a couple weeks back, something happened down in Asbury, Kentucky, at the Asbury Seminary. It was a revival that happened. At least many called it a revival. Some who went reported something that was unseen yet undeniable. Others went and they reported a a less than favorable estimation of what was going on during that phenomenon. I don't have first-hand knowledge of what went on at Asbury. But people who who have ministries that I've respected for a while have reported reported on both sides of the issue. Some say what happened there was was good and it it was honoring to God. Some say, not so fast, there were some other things going on there that were not so good. It's kind of a a wise thing to wait and see what the fruit of that will be. Will it lead to repentance? Will it lead to a, a deeper pursuit of God's Word? Will it lead to holiness? It's good to wait and see on those things. The reason I bring this up, though, is because there's an undeniable attraction that we all have to mystery. When a thing that cannot be according to all of our sensory perception happens, and yet there it is, even though it can't be. It is. We can't help but move closer to seek out understanding of that mystery. And the events at Asbury illustrate this tendency in humans. People from all over the country, maybe even all over the world, were drawn to come and observe what was happening at Asbury. Guys, There's something equally unseen but undeniable that can happen anywhere at any time. And it's the mystery of the indwelling Christ. Like the force of a magnet that is unseen yet undeniable when Christ makes his home in the human heart The effect may be unseen, but it's undeniable. Absolutely undeniable. Paul calls this a mystery because, remember, a mystery to him was something that was hinted at in the Old Testament, but revealed more fully in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, if you look back at the book of Exodus, you can just see in a general outline of the book, 
this notion that God wants to be near His people. In chapters 1 through 18, the Exodus presents God as the God who delivers, right? God rescues His people from their bondage. He takes them out of Egypt and He takes them into the wilderness. God is a God who delivers in, verse, in chapters 1 through 18. Chapters 19 through 24, God is described as the God who demands. And those are the events of Sinai and the giving of the law. In verses 20, or chapters 25 to 40, the God who delivers became the God who demands, and He eventually becomes the God who dwells. The God who tabernacles amongst His people. Christ in you. Paul couldn't have used a better preposition to convey just how close God wants to be to His people. So close He's inside our very hearts. There's a a young lady at a restaurant that I go to that works there. I won't name the restaurant. But there's a young lady that works there who has her, her face and her arms and every bit of exposed skin covered in tattoos. Not in an orderly sense, either, almost random. She has her hair discolored in a very vibrant color. She has piercings all over her face and her ears. This is really a modern phenomenon that we see more and more often. People covering themselves with tattoos and piercings and body modifications and hair dyes. And it doesn't seem like it's for the purpose of enhancement or beautification, right? There's a difference. We can tell the difference. It's more for the purpose of disfiguring their appearance. People who make enhancements to their appearance, they do so to invite looks or glances, right? But those who disfigure themselves it would seem that they want people to see them and then avert their eyes and look away. I fear they must hate themselves to do that. When I see this young lady at this restaurant, I feel, I, I feel pity for her. She must hate herself. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Some of us look in the mirror and we hate ourselves. We hate what looks back. Some of us look in the mirror and we we like what we see. There was a time in my life when I was in high school where I suffered with acne. And many of you guys have done that. Some of you are suffering with it right now. I just, if you are, this too shall pass, don't worry. But I did in high school and there was a certain restaurant bathroom that I hated going into because the mirror, the lighting and the mirror just made, made the, the pimples just like doubly noticeable. It was Frisch's in Hamilton, by the way. Stay out of those bathrooms, okay? I hated looking at myself in the mirror. I hated looking at myself in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Some of you, when you look in the mirror of your soul, you don't like what you see. Some of you look in the mirror of your soul and you like what you see too much. Let me tell you this, guys. If you've you've come to Christ and put your trust in Him, if you've received the truth of the gospel and have put your faith in that, the God who dwells not in temples made by human hands looks at you and He says, there is my dwelling place. There's an old third day song. The lyrics go like this. As your children gather in peace, all the angels sing in heaven. In your temple, all that I seek is to glimpse your holy presence. All the angels exalt you on high. What a kingdom to depart. But you left your throne in the sky just to live inside my heart. All the heavens cannot hold you, Lord. How much less to dwell in me. 
I can only make my one desire holding on to thee. I will always make my one desire holding on to thee. The Apostle Paul's great adoration and devotion was the one who embodied this great mystery that filled the pages of the Old Testament. Jesus, the Christ, God in the flesh, the same one that Paul had just described back in verses 15 to 20 as the almighty creator of all that is, this God who created everything, who is greater than everything, this same one, this same one, this God literally dwells in his people. The one who has experienced the reality of the mystery of the indwelling Christ will not long live learning how to rejoice in suffering. They will get there. They will find joy. They will not be long vacillating between disordered self-love or self-hate. They will learn to assess, assess themselves rightly and with gratitude acknowledging the immeasurable blessing that is the indwelling Christ. One who knows the reality of Christ living within will find their own aim and mission to be just like Paul's. To spread the wonders of this mystery to all who will hear it through the teaching of this word. And they'll not remain lazy or indolent or neglectful of their God-given task of doing so. And finally, the one who knows the reality of the matchless love of the indwelling Christ cannot help but adore this Christ who has made His home in their hearts. Paul calls the wonder of this mystery of Christ in you the hope of glory. And what he has in mind here is related to the destinies of those in whom Christ abides. Paul envisions a promised reality that will one day arrive and that the Colossians will get to experience in full. And he's already described this glory in uh, other places in chapter 1. In verse 5, he called it their hope laid up in heaven. He described this glory in chapter 1, verse 12 as the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he called this glory the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the glory that Paul has in mind their eternal destination. And the only hope they had of achieving this end was the mystery. Not the mystery of some hidden knowledge reserved only for the elite and the initiated. Not some mystery that was revealed through some esoteric ritual or, or occult practice. The mystery of the power of the indwelling Christ. This was their only hope for attaining that glorious destiny. And listen, I want you to behold and apprehend this wondrous mystery this morning. Because of the revelation of this mystery is for all men, great and small, white collar and blue collar, rich and poor, wise and unwise. It's for all of us. Any and all who hear the message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and they believe that message so as to entrust themselves to this Jesus will find the loving Christ enter into their very soul and He will transform their lives so as to ready them for the glory that is to come. Will you receive Him today? Let me pray. Father in heaven, there, is, there are no words to describe the riches of the glory of this mystery that you would descend heaven in all of its glory to live inside the hearts of your people, to live among your church, to empower us with your spirit and impress upon us the importance of your word Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do these things in us. In your name I pray. Amen. Rise for one last song.
the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the now. Amen.